0: I had a really good understanding of the market. I had customers that were wanting the product. We didn't want to enter the market with a product that was half done because we knew that we would get crushed by the guys that are already in the market. We didn't want to be thought as kind of somebody that's at the lower end of the space. So we felt to compete, we need to be on, on par and hopefully better than a lot of the the products that are on the market. So when we launched, you know, we had a fully baked product. You always gather customer feedback, and there's always you know customer-inspired features that you're adding to your platform always getting better. But that initial launch, uh, the core platform was complete. If you talk to the venture community, that kind of disrupts their th- a lot of their thinking on the way that they think about companies and how they value companies. But for a more experienced entrepreneur that has the industry expertise and knowledge, it's, it's probably a better approach uh, that's there if you have the funding and capabilities to spend the time to really build what you want.
1: Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by bringing your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked to Matt Sawyer about the challenges that international companies face when they enter the U.S. market and how even American businesses can learn from them. Our guest today is John Derbyshire, CEO and co-founder of SmartSuite. John is a repeat entrepreneur. He built a software company that he successfully sold to EMC, started a foundation, and now is in year three of his new venture. Before starting his first company, John spent over 10 years in major consulting firms, he left a position as a partner at Ernst & Young, actually, when he launched his first company. In our conversation, we talked about how the processes and rigor that he learned in that environment informed his approach to building culture and methodologies at his first company, ultimately resulting in success. John also shared why he took an approach that is contrary to popular startup wisdom. He fully developed this product before launching. He had some great advice on how to think about MVPs, why he decided to launch only when the product was fully developed, and how to incorporate customer feedback in product design without launching. From there, we talked about what motivates entrepreneurs at different stages. Helping people find their passion, how there are many leadership approaches that may work, and how to find the one that you're comfortable with. And finally, we talked about how is designing software to solve for the proliferation of tools in the modern work environment. It was fascinating to hear how the changes happening in the workplace in the past few years have influenced very specific design decisions. It was a wide-ranging conversation, and I am sure that you will enjoy it as much as I did. One final thing. Remember, I'm giving away a free copy of Bill Principale's book, Improvisational Leadership, to my favorite review of the show written before the end of July. I am also giving a free copy of Susan Cataneo's album, All Is Quiet, to my favorite review written between July and August. So, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave some great reviews and ratings. And now, enjoy the episode. John welcome. It's great to have you here on the podcast. So why don't we start and have you introduce yourself to our listeners, what you're doing now and sort of the journey that took you here. Sure.
0: Yeah. My name is John Darbyshire. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Smart Suite. We're a work management platform that allows organizations to manage any process or project on a single platform. So if you're using products today, maybe in the project management space, like um, <laughs> Airtable or ClickUp or Monday or Asana, we have those types of capabilities, but we also then allow you to do more complex process uh, workflows as well. Uh, My background spans over some 30 years. I kind of started my career in the big X consulting firms, uh, eventually became a partner at Ernst & Young. I ran one of their uh, global security practices for a period of years. I left Ernst & Young and founded a tech startup called Archer Technologies that was The first player in the governance risk and compliance space and sold that company in 2010 to uh, EMC, which later EMC sold into Dell. Retired for a period of years uh, after that, started a family foundation where we focused on uh, youth programs, women's initiatives, and entrepreneurial programs. As we talk about passion, I learned that that wasn't really my passion. I enjoyed it and it was worthwhile, but it wasn't my passion. Uh, I really wanted to get back into uh, software design and working with clients, understanding how to solve business problems through process, through software and working with just energetic, talented people, I, I really miss the, those interactions that I had with with the team members. We started Smart Suite uh, about two and a half years ago, almost three, I guess. Now we spent the first two and a half years with a team of about a hundred developers. Building the core platform. So it was a pretty big lift uh, to get to that point. Uh, We didn't make any announcements until we were completely done with really the phase three of the platform, which we felt had all of the features needed to solve all of these problems and fully compete in the space, which is a little unique from most startups that you know work for six months and have an MVP and work with clients. We felt like to solve the problem, we really needed to have all of these key features uh, that's there. And we Did a soft launch in January, and uh, we have about 400 customers on the platform to date. And we're doing our formal launch here in just a week at the end of July.
1: So this is great because actually I love what you just said about the building the company, because I think that in the past 12 years, since uh, the lean startup came out, a lot of people have misunderstood what an MVP is. And I think there's been a rush to this, you know, test quickly and fail, et cetera. What was the logic behind your decision to actually not go that path?
0: I'm not a fan of that particular methodology in all cases as well. I think it works in a lot of cases, maybe 70% of startups. That's a really good activity for you. In my particular case, I had a really good understanding of the market already in the space. I had customers that were wanting the product that I could gather feedback from. And we didn't want to enter the market with a product that was half done because we knew that we would get crushed by the guys that are already in the market today. We couldn't catch up. We didn't want to be thought as kind of somebody that's at the lower end of the space. So we felt to compete, we need to be on on par and hopefully better than a lot of the, the products that are on the market today. So when we launched... You know, we had a fully baked product uh, at that point. And since that time, you know, you always gather customer feedback and there's always, you know, customer-inspired features that you're adding to your platform. It's always getting better. But that initial launch, the core platform was complete. And if you talk to the venture community, that kind of disrupts their a lot of their thinking on the way that they think about companies and how they value companies kind of along that journey. But for a more experienced entrepreneur that has the industry expertise and knowledge, it's, it's probably a better approach uh, that's there if you have the, the funding and capabilities to spend the time to really build what you want
1: or what, what's needed. Yeah. So you touched on a little bit on like my following questions. So the first one is, if a founder starts a business, they have an idea, what are some of the questions that they should ask themselves? before deciding whether going the mvp route or whether building a little more
0: the, the first question for me is listen to the customer right so what what are the potential customers talking to you about and what features do they need to solve that problem that's there and then that helps you understand in my mind what needs to be in your MVP. Your MVP needs to solve some portion of that problem. It might not be a 100%, but if it was 85% is probably a good start that's there. And you always continue to build uh, this there. And if you feel that you can do that in three months or six months or nine months of development time, that's when I feel you should release your MVP. But I don't feel that you should release until you feel like you've captured the essence of the problem that you're trying to solve for the customer, especially if there's other products that are in, in the same space, because what's going to happen is you're very quickly going to get compared to these other products. And if you get put down at the bottom of that list, it's much harder to work your way up over time than it is if you take another three months, six months, and, and start on par or above uh, you know, the players in the space.
1: Great. So part one. So assuming that you've made the decision that you're not going to rush an MVP out to market, and that it, that's the right decision, as you mentioned. You you know, you're thinking disrupted the, the VCs. Were, were you funded by the VCs in this three years, or or did you do start with uh, with angel investors? What is the strategy to make sure that you have the ability and the control to roll it out the way that you want?
0: Yeah, so I, I think that you know, I'm a little later in my career. I've had some success early in my career, so I was in a position maybe that a lot of younger founders aren't and that uh, capital was not a problem for me. Uh, I invested about $15 million to date on where we're at with just the core build of the products. Uh, Didn't need to bring on any angel investors or or outside venture firms uh, to kind of get to that point. So that allowed me to control my destiny a little more and gave me the freedom to build, you know, the MVP that I wanted over that period of time without the pressure you know, from an outside third party, you know, maybe dictating some of that. If you're a younger founder, this approach is probably not going to work for most young founders that need to bring on, you know, funding from Angel or, you know, formal, you know, Series A type venture.
1: Assuming that you fall a little bit in between, what are some of the things that a founder could do to manage that pressure and be able to get to the product that they want to launch?
0: If you feel like you, you don't want to formally announce your MVP and, and go to market, the best test case is you, you want to find those initial customers that maybe are helping you along this journey and providing feedback right. and will become your first customers. And typically, in the five to seven range, is a good number for a small startup to be there. And that also helps satisfy some of the angel investors, some of the venture firms to know that. You're headed down the right path. You know, we're 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 beginning to understand how to solve real customer problems that are there before we launch. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story. One of the first companies that I found at Archer Technologies, which is still around today, and they're about a seven hundred million dollar a year reoccurring SaaS business. You know, pretty pretty big company. Our first customer was was a company in Dallas called EDS. And we contacted EDS before we wrote a line of code. I presented them with an HTML prototype back in the time on like a three and a half inch diskette, if you remember those days. And I basically showed them a better way to manage processes around security and compliance at an organization of that size, right, that hadn't been done before. And they came back and said, long story short, they, they said, we want to be your first customer. We want to sign a three-year deal with you uh, during the negotiation I went in and I I think, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I was like, I think it's $500,000 a year, three-year commitment. We're gonna sell what you traditionally purchase as a a perpetual license. We're gonna sell it in a SaaS model. You're gonna pay the same amount every year. And in that discussion, uh, the person that I was dealing with was pretty intimidating. And he came back to me and he said, that sounds good, John. We're gonna pay you 850,000 a year for three years, guaranteed, and we're gonna provide some of this money up front. And it, it took me back for a minute. Like, did I, you know, what did I just say? He counted higher than what I actually proposed. And he laughed at me after about 30 seconds of realizing I was trying to figure that out and just said, this is so important to our business, John. You have to be successful for us to be successful. We don't want you to worry about a little bit of money. We need you to go build what we need. And we know you need capital right now. And we started that company with no venture funding because we had one customer that saw the vision of, of where we needed to go, and it was so important to them. And that allowed us to run that business for eight years, cash flow positive, without any venture funding. We brought money in in year eight, and just to take a little bit of cash off the table. And then in year nine, end of year nine, we sold you know, formally because we had a lot of offers that were coming in. But that... To me, when I talk with a lot of founders, that's like that—that's the home run. If you can find that customer that is so engaged uh, and they need the product that helps you have some cash come in the door while you're actually building that MVP, that also gets the angel investors and the venture guys very excited to know that you've—you've you've already got the first whale, right? And they're—they're they're on board with you.
1: That's great. And so this leads me to the next question, which is you mentioned earlier that you started your first business actually after a full career in consulting because you left Ernst Young, is that where you are? Correct. Correctly, Yes. Yes. And you were a partner at that stage. What are some of the benefits to taking the entrepreneurial leap later in your career?
0: I, I was always kind of dabbling along the way, but I think I was 34 or 35 when I started Archer Technologies, kind of after the career at Ernst & Young. But... Ernst & Young gave me just a a great background in how to manage and lead people, right? And how to build processes inside of your organization that allow people to excel kind of in their roles. It was just a very, you know, methodology process-driven company. They've been successful over such a long period of time. So, I learned a lot that I took into when I started the company to really think about not just the product that I wanted to create, but the people that I needed to hire and how to begin to build that culture, you know, of those people and how to organize the leadership team and the kind of the hierarchical structure, you know, that came inside of the company. So for me, it was uh, Ernst Young was just a great place for me to learn how to, you know, to have the skills to become a successful entrepreneur later in life.
1: So since you mentioned like you know, some of it is like the leadership skills and the culture, how did you start forming your vision of who you wanted to be as a leader and as a manager? What were some of the key moments? And then if you're comfortable sharing sort of what are your leadership principles?
0: Yeah, you know, that's that's one of the first things that most founders need to figure out right away. And there's different types of leaders, you know, and different ways that you can lead people. I'm not the yell at you type of person. I'm a little more laid back. So my my style is different, but I'm also very hands-on. Like I enjoy getting in the work and working with or beside, you know, the people in the organization to teach them exactly how to do the things that need to get done. And as you know, in a startup, um, that's super, I feel that that's very important. I, I have friends that are very different than that, that have also been very successful entrepreneurs and that they're very hands off, but yet they're very vocal. Right. And so they, they're easy to criticize people in a fair way when they don't perform at the level that they want. And they are also hands-off. Like they give them a lot of rope to go get things done. You go figure this out, right? But it needs to come back with this answer uh, that's there. I'm a little in between. Like I, I'm not that comfortable just completely being hands-off when you're trying to build things from new. So I like to be in the detail until I get comfortable, help train the people with kind of the direction that I would like to go and then hand that off to them. Uh, and let them go. And I'm not as much of a, I I, I, I hate the conversational side of that, confrontational side of things. You know, I can have those hard discussions, but it's not kind of built in my DNA to be that way. So I I find other ways to kind of get the same results through really the documentation of goals and objectives. And you're probably familiar with the concept of OKRs and how that's kind of swept through the, the SaaS market, you know, with objectives and key results, which is really just all about, as an organization, documenting what is important to get done in the organization over a time period. Typically, you have OKs that are a year, maybe half a year, and maybe by quarter. And then the team members, and then you set the goals for each of those on how do I measure if we're successful in these areas that get done. And then that helps empower the people that are doing the work to understand this is the bar, like this is what needs to be done that I need to go figure out. And if something that I'm doing is not on that list, Object, objectives and key results I, I need to ask before i maybe go down that path to make sure that i we either need to update those okrs or we we say no that's not in the scope for this next three months you know let's stay focused on on these items and i'll give you a great one great example of that. My wife ran sales at Archer Technologies for She ran sales and marketing while I kind of did everything else. And we, we made a decision early on in that company after we sold EDS that we would go after financial services as the core industry that we wanted to try to sell into. So we broke down the top 30 financial services companies in the U.S., mainly Wall Street banks, and then we took the first 10. And we wouldn't go to any other company until we sold all 10 of the first 10. Then we went to the second 10, and then we went to the third 10. We ended up with 29 of those of the 30 accounts as customers over that three-year period. But that was documented for us as a key objective on the sales side. So when we had smaller deals that came our way that were kind of out of scope, we just let the sales team know that that's great, but this is our focus. And once we get this done, we feel that we'll have a better chance to bring on more customers in the tech space, the healthcare space, the telecommunication space. And that's exactly uh, what happened to that company. That was a key defining moment for us through an objective that everybody in the company was aware of.
1: So that's a fascinating story because I think that that's one of the biggest tensions that startups face, right? It's the idea that revenue is important. And probably the most difficult thing to do is to say no to something that for like there are clients that you know you really don't want to have clients that you know you really want to have and then there's a gray area with different shades and you know depending on how far you go into the gray you're kind of like eroding more and more at it so what was the process of installing the discipline and creating the comfort in the sales team of saying no?
0: Well, you know, I I think that probably goes back to a lot of that training at Ernst & Young and that it was very, we didn't call them OKRs at that time inside of Ernst & Young, but we had very specific marching orders and objectives, you know, inside of each department. And it was a very much a hierarchical type organization that, you know, you reported up the food chain, you know, to different levels. Uh, And they managed that. Every month where you would sit down with who you reported to and go through what you got done. So I I think I carried that into our first tech company there. But I also realized that whoever could win the game inside of selling our type of product into the large financial services companies had a better chance of actually winning the game for the broader market over time. Because financial services, it was, it was easy to go to another company and say, I have Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley as customers, right? And there's a big me too mentality in the tech space. So once we mention those names, they're like, if those guys are using you, I, I should probably give you a look, right? And at that point, we're in the game. Like we, we have a chance for, the sales process to maybe even be easier because of those references. And then we used those customers as references uh, as well. And the next thing that we did that was so that was so beneficial for us is we started a, a user community. This is at the request of American Express, who was and American Express and Wells Fargo were two early customers. And they came and said, we want to get together at least once a year. And we want to hear how other customers are using your product and how they're solving problems so that we can, where we're not competitive in nature, we can share information and we can all do a better job. And we had that first meeting with like 24 people in Phoenix. And, you know, one of the latest sessions in 2008 or nine before we left was over 500 customers would come and spend three and a half days talking about how they implemented our product amongst each other. There was no sales process that happened on our site. It was just our customers talking. And they turned into the biggest references for us to go to new customers. And we would invite new customers to come to these events and not sell them, but just let them listen to other customers and the sales process would kind of happen. So that was that's one of the biggest things that we've I've ever done it from a sales perspective that's been successful.
1: That's great. But what was interesting is like we you know when the salesperson comes to you and says, I have I don't know, I'll name one of my local banks. Here. I have Eastern Bank that wants to come on board. And you go, well, that's great, but we're not going to take them. How is that conversation happening? And how are you keeping that salesperson motivated?
0: Yeah, so at that time, we just had three salespeople. So it wasn't like a, it was a super large team when we were starting. But those conversations came up you know, a couple times a month, uh, for sure. Because other people, especially other banks, like you just mentioned, had heard about us. And we we had this mantra, we just said, no dilution of goal. And every time someone would come in my office and we would talk about something, I would say those words and people begin to kind of replicate that through the organization to know that, all right, we have a plan and we're going after that plan. And once we were successful in 10 of the first 10 of those companies, people started to believe and understand like, this is actually working. And then the, the truth is when we hit, Twenty something of the financial services companies, we started to bring on some other customers as well as we continued to work on kind of that third block. But in the first couple of years, we only we only sold into
1: customers in that top twenty that was there. I want to touch up on something else, which is you came from being a partner at a major consulting firm, then started your first company, then you said you spent an amount of time in a nonprofit, and now you're a CEO. How has your perspective on being the leader shifted across these four sort of roles? And and how are you living your role as a CEO now versus, you know, maybe earlier on in your career? I enjoy spending more
0: time teaching now as a CEO. Uh, I love to bring on younger staff members early in their career, as many right out of school as we could find that kind of have you know the, the intellect and passion for kind of what we do as an organization and then uh, I like to work with them and give them the opportunity in their first year with us to work in each department up to five departments of the company during that time so that allows them through that first year to do a couple of things first they they begin to find the areas of the company that they kind of excel in and have a passion for right and when you come out of school sometimes you don't really know If you feel like marketing, you know, like sales, public relations, you know, customer care, customer support, like we just we put them through everything on the product team. And uh, it's fun to watch them find kind of where their passion is over that first year uh, that happens. But the second thing that's even more important that happens for the company is that now those people have built connections across all these different groups. They feel really comfortable in the company where they can go talk with people in different groups and they're not just segmented in their particular group. And we started this 20 some years ago at Archer and some of those original people that we brought into that program have grown up to to be leaders in that company today, which is, is, you know, really fun to see. Uh, And I, I think it was because of the knowledge that they gained across the organization, as opposed to maybe just being in marketing and not understanding the other aspects of the company.
1: Following on that, how your role as a CEO has changed, I guess the next question is, how has your definition of success changed over the years and what is success to you now versus what it was maybe, you know, when you started at Archer or when you even started at Ernst & Young?
0: You know, early in your career, I think you're motivated a little bit by wanting to be successful and not knowing if you're going to be successful. Right, so you've got you're always pushing, and you're worried. You know, can I get to that point? And each person maybe has has different thoughts about what successful kind of means. You know, to them uh, at that point. As I get older, I, I don't personally. I, I feel like I, I've been successful enough for me. It's not about the success. I don't have to tell you how great I am. Maybe when I was thirty, I would maybe worry a little bit more that you liked me, and felt that I was successful. Now I, I want you to like me still, but I, I don't have this need to try to convince you how great that I might be in my role. And as a you know a business owner, uh, you know you're you're still driven by revenue and customers are the two biggest things that kind of dictate the success of the company. So I don't think you can ever get around that. But culture and just work-life balance and just working with fascinating people, I want to work with the people that I want to work with at this point in my career. And I have that luxury a little bit. So we're pretty picky on who we hire and who we contract with that's there where maybe I didn't have that luxury, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Hopefully, does that answer the question?
1: Yeah, that answers the question. And so the other thing that I find fascinating You've done a journey, you know, at some point that many people dream about, which is like you had a first very successful business and then finally, you know, decided to apply yourself to a nonprofit and a goal. And then, as you mentioned, decided that that was not what you were interested in. And so what were some of the moments of realizing that this is great, but it's not what I'm looking for right now?
0: You know, I think what happened to me personally is when we... When we sold Archer Technologies and we kind of said, okay, what's next? And we said, we've we've talked a lot about a family foundation. And the name Archer was my grandfather's name. So it was a family name. It's my mom's maiden name. And so we thought, let's start the Archer Foundation and let's really focus on youth programs and women's initiatives and entrepreneurial programs in Kansas City, where we were living at the time uh, that was there. And we did that for five and a half, six years and did some great things worked with a lot of great people, helped a lot of great nonprofits that were in the area. But to be honest, at, towards the end, like I was a little bored. I, I I did it and I saw how meaningful it was, but I wasn't really fulfilled. And what, what I found for me personally was that I, I really have a passion for designing software. And that's what I, I, any, if I can design anything, that's where I want to work. And my wife was said, she told me, you, you keep, you designed our house and we bought another house. You, you, you did all the interior design in there. Like I just kept moving from project to project to try to fill that void. But the real void was, you know, I'm a software guy. So I f- felt that there was still a need in the market for the type of software that, that I had in my mind for, for some time. And I, I tell you what, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot more rewarding now than what I was doing, you know, five or
1: six years ago. That's a, a great insight in terms of the fact that you realize that what you love doing is designing software and one of my previous guests talked about the fact that right now young people are told you know go find what your passion is and that is a very tall order right to find what your passion is at the right moment when did you realize that that was your passion and what was there a specific moment or like you know what was the journey there
0: in the back of my mind, even as a young child, maybe in like junior high and coming into high school, like I found myself every summer going and doing new summer jobs, but they were all things that I created. You know, I had a lawn mowing business that got really successful one summer. And then I did a painting business because I thought people needed their house painted around where I live. Then I did a roofing business. But and I didn't realize at the time that I just really enjoyed like all those aspects of those things. And when I went to you know, started my career at Ernst and Young. I got some of that from them, but I didn't really understand what it all meant yet. And then I kind of, through that journey, I found that I really love software. And the reason I did was because every day you make the software better and it feels like you're accomplishing something every day, every day that you work, something's getting better in the product, you know, that you're working on. And for me, that checks a lot of boxes kind of off of just how I'm built that I I enjoyed that type of, of journey. And also building software is is an approach where you really have to listen and you get interact with a lot of people. And I don't have to be the the center of attention, but I enjoy the interactions with the the people and to hearing their thoughts. And then I like the fact that I can come back, work with our team and design things, go back to the customer and see see that smile on their face that they're excited about how we've solved that problem for them.
1: Great. So let's talk about the problem that you're solving right now with SmartSuite, what's the problem and how did you go about solving it? Sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, probably most people listening to this podcast understand this specifically, that when you're actually doing your job right now, you're probably working in somewhere between six to eight different products each day as you're doing your job. You're you're flipping between tabs, you know, opening things up, going into different products, whether that be your email, maybe you're using Slack for communication, maybe you're using different file management systems to store files, maybe you're using Google Docs, then you're using products like Salesforce, maybe for your sales and HubSpot for marketing, and maybe Jira for ticket management, and maybe some project management tools, like all those things together, it's pretty common that a lot of companies use all of those. Our, our idea was that What if we took the capabilities of all those products that I just mentioned and that we package 90 to 95 percent of the features that you get in each one of those into one single platform that would allow you to come to work? And as a business owner, think of it as it's a business operating system. And I can each process that I have in my company, if it's sales, marketing, customer service, customer care, HR, software development, we have templates best-in-class process templates for all of those that you start with that you can quickly tailor. It's a no-code type platform that means you easily drag and drop fields and create reports. There's no coding that's needed to do any of this. And our goal is to help organizations maybe have one to three products that your team needs to use all day instead of six to eight. But at the same time, there's a large ROI on the price. Now I only have to pay for one product that maybe did what I had four or five products for Uh, prior. But there's also cost savings when you onboard new employees, right? You only have to train them on a single product. And now they kind of understand everything that's there. And then when I offboard employees, all the data you know, the things that they had access to is in one place, right? I can remove their login, but all the data is still there. So there's a lot of advantages to having what the industry is beginning to refer to products like SmartSuite as, as a work management platform. It's a single place that you can do most of the work or your employees can do most of the work inside of your company.
1: Obviously, since you have developed this suite over the past three years, I assume that You know, some of it reflects the new needs and challenges that companies are facing with whether this hybrid or remote uh, work is being permanent or partial. As you were thinking about that, what were some of the main challenges that companies are facing in that specific arena?
0: Yeah, if you talk about remote work, you know, most employees love it most employers are, you don't love it or they're not quite sure if they love it yet. Right. And the reason that the employees love it is, you know, it's more of a work-life balance. A a lot of, especially the younger, the the Gen Zers tend to like to travel more and they work during the day and do fun things at night, you know, anywhere in the world. And the employers, what they're looking for is "How, how do I keep everybody engaged? How do I know what people are working on? How do I Keep that same company culture, or how do I build a company culture around that, and how do I allow you know collaboration? So company culture and collaboration are built into the platform that we have. We have quite a number of features. If you're familiar with Slack and use Slack in your organization, we have Slack channels built into SmartSuite based on the work that you're doing. So if you're in a particular task or a record getting work done, you can have a conversation that's in context to the work that's there, and it's always saved right there. So it's like taking Slack, which is really good at having these big, broad conversations and bringing it into context to where the work is actually happening. So I can go back and, and, and in our case, you can tick things off and say that I've completed these things, maybe that I've having a conversation about uh, that's there. We have built-in member directories. So everyone in the organization shows up with profiles similar to Facebook, where they can share both their work and their personal information if they choose to share personal information. But uh, for millennials and Gen Zers that are so focus on sharing information, like it's like their built in community inside of where they work. It's a little kind of closed loop, but now I can get to know the people I work with and not just know their title and they're in marketing, but I could see through their hobbies, the things they like, maybe they can post things when they come in from the weekend and share with everybody about, you know, what they did on the weekend. So it helps build the culture a little more. So what's uniquely different about SmartSuite is that not only do we provide the features that we've been talking about, but we tried to build in this culture component in the platform to help you maintain that if your people are working remotely, or even if you're a larger organization with people uh, in different offices. And the last thing I'll say here is that our the user interface that we've created for SmartSuite is based specifically for people 23 to 38 years of age, basically the Gen Zers and the Millennials. Because we feel those are the people that do the majority of the work in today's workforce. So the platform needs to speak to them first in the way that they want to work, organize their work. It's a little more visual than older so- software platforms. So it tries to keep their attention. If you've worked with any Gen Zers, you'll know that they're working on their computer. They, they have their phone in their hand sometimes at the same time. And they may be having a conversation like they like to do lots of things at the same time and they get bored. So we try to address that kind of in the design of the software as well
1: I, I think you mentioned you've been working with some sample clients before you are going to do the big launch
0: we have over 400 accounts 400 clients to date that, that's in that grows uh, we have new signups that you know happen every day uh, for the product we offer the products uh, through our website with just a free trial for 14 days no credit card required you try that for 14 days if you need another 14 you just say hey increase my trial another 14. At the end of the trial, if you're uh, ready to convert, you pick one of our paid plans that starts at $10 per user per month. And if you're still not ready, you can flip to our free forever version and allows up to three people with some limited. We don't give you all the full functionality, but we give you most of the functionality with just limited record sets uh, that's there. So the our, our approach is try it till you love it, and and you don't you don't have to buy it until you felt like you actually have value from it.
1: It sounds from this that it's a little bit of a different, an op, in terms of your, who you're selling to, it's a little bit the opposite than Archer, where you wanted the top 30 here. It's a much, maybe more small and medium-sized businesses and going up to enterprise.
0: No. So we, we have enterprise as well. We have our largest companies, a $53 billion real estate hedge fund. So we've got the, we've got the big guys and kind of everything in between. What you'll see is that our, our core strategy is it's what's called product-led growth, which is Basically, means you're selling your product through your website with a really simple, easy trial period, and and the people can self convert. And then we're building the sales engine that we're reaching out to the enterprise accounts currently as well. So we'll have a direct sales team, or we have a direct sales team that focuses on enterprise that don't necessarily want to come in and and do the free trials that way all the time.
1: So great, because this leads me to my next question. As somebody who has a different point of my career brought clients to the transition of adopting a new platform, a new tool set, a new toolkit. 99% of the time when the effort succeeds or fails, I mean, there's some pretty bad technology, but in generally, the problem is not with the technology, but is with the onboarding and the rate of adoption. What are some of the successful story and then maybe like some strategies that could be successful for anybody who's onboarding a team to a new big tool that requires a significant shift in the way that people are working that you have seen with some of your clients, your larger clients.
0: We see a couple of different approaches. You know, we see people that kind of come in and they start picking off little processes inside the company one at a time and moving it to smart suite. And some of the project management stuff is usually kind of the low hanging fruit where they can say, now we can give you a better platform to manage this. And then we start kind of picking off some of the minor processes in the company that would make sense and to really see if there's value across the teams. And what typically happens is one team sees what another team is doing and then that team joins and we can watch that happen online as we, we track the titles, you know, the departments of people that sign up. So we can see that marketing's been using it, but now we've got salespeople and customer care, you know, coming in and building things out on their side. So it's kind of that, that piecemeal. Approach. The other one is we've got some companies that just drew a line in the sand and they just moved to us on a date. So they had everything configured and they transferred the data on this date, everybody moves over to the new system. That's not the norm uh, that we typically see. Most people kind of move things over in pieces that are there. And when I say moving over, like building out a process in SmartSuite, literally from start to finish can take an hour to two hours to model out Exactly how you do it in your company. And we provide 200 templates, which are best in class processes for how to manage things in your business. So if you're not sure what a best in class process looks like in a company, you can download it. It takes three seconds to download it. You get demo data. You can play with it and see. And then that helps spark the ideas of maybe how you want to have the process in place. And we feel that, you know, any process is only as, as, as good as, as what you understand you want your process to be. Right. So if you if you start off with a bad process, you're going to get a bad result. So the templates are really meant to show uh, organizations, regardless of size, what a best-in-class process looks like for something. And we usually give you two to three versions of that kind of a lighter version, a, a intermediate version, and then kind of this is what the enterprise, you know, Fortune 500 type accounts would use.
1: I'm going to shift us over to the more personal side of uh, the podcast. And do you have a interest outside of work or a passion that has had a meaningful impact on your work and what is it
0: you know when we transitioned from Archer into the Family Foundation like we 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 found something that we really enjoyed doing and we enjoyed the the people that we worked with and the feeling that we had that we could we could do something that could make a difference right in different people's lives and what we found that we were the best at was helping some of the nonprofits begin to understand how they could be better managed and things that they could offer that would allow them to reach more people. It's not just about always the money, the money, the money. Sometimes it's about how do I better take care of the money that I have uh, that's there. So both Tara and I enjoy outside of my wife, Tara runs sales for us in this business as well at at Smart Suite. We, outside of of work, we enjoy working with organizations and in different ways, you know, serving on boards, you know, just being mentors, uh, donating money that kind of helps them be more successful in, in what they're doing. And then outside of that, you know, we're, we're very active people. We, we, uh, we live in Southern California. We love to be outside almost every day, doing things. We enjoy, you know, being around friends and family as much as possible.
1: Next question. This is my favorite question of the podcast, and it is: every era has expressions, jargons, or business cliches that are so overused that at some point they lose meaning. What is the expression that when you hear it drives you crazy? <laughs> oh boy, that's a good one. Typically, those expressions
0: are around young entrepreneurs that are focused on the value of their company and how much money they're raising. And there's not anything in the conversation about their customers or their products, right? It's just about how much wealth I can, I'm creating for myself. or so, you know, the, I, I raised another $10 million round, and I, I hate it when I hear entrepreneurs continue to focus on, on just how much money they've raised and what the value was versus the You know the the customers or product I, i i can't really put that into a phrase but just that that concept
1: now that's a really important concept and actually a very true one because at the end of the day ultimately the people who truly success in creating value for themselves are the people who start focusing on the product and the customer and not the raise final question i call it food for the body or food for the soul is there you know food for the body if there's a particular recipe or drink that you really love, or food for the soul, if you want to talk about a book, a movie, a piece of music, piece of art, a place, something that inspires you, and you can choose which way you want to go.
0: Yeah, I think from a book perspective, probably the the one book that I've been most fascinated with, and this has been probably, it may have came out almost 20 years ago. It's called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and If you're not familiar with with Malcolm, he likes to focus on telling stories about how and why people became successful in different industries. But he's not focused on the as much what they did. He's focused on how they got there. So, you know, in in Outliers, he takes seven or eight different people and teams of people to understand uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and the Beatles and some some high-powered lawyers in New York, and even hockey players in Canada. And he kind of breaks it down to say, where were they at and what were they doing that led to them being able to take advantage of the opportunity that they were given at that particular moment. So for, for Steve Jobs, you know, he goes through his childhood with his dad and where his dad worked and bringing home computer equipment each night. And Steve, at a young age, was one of the only people in the world that had access to that information at that age. And as he grew up, he was able to take advantage of that, which with Bill Gates, you know, he was located in, in the state of Washington, 20 minutes from one of the first supercomputers in the world. And he found out that in the mornings, I, I get the times off a little bit, between like one and three in the morning when he was in junior high or high school, there was idle time on that computer and he would sneak away from his house and go code and program. And he was the only person his age with access to that information. He made it happen. But that's what led to the opportunity, you know, to create Microsoft. And I, I'm not doing these stories justice, but Outliers does an amazing job of telling you that you you need to put in the time and have 10,000 hours is what Malcolm kind of says. Is kind of the hurdle before you can go, you know, be an expert in a particular area and take advantage of maybe a market opportunity.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because I've, I've read Outliers a couple of times too. And I think for me, the other thing that it really does a good justice at, and I think it's a part that a lot of people don't need to acknowledge, is that if you are in the right place to put the 10,000 hours in, then you'll have the outcome. But if you're not in the right place, I think there's the example of uh, why are all the hockey players drafted born between January and March? If you're born in October, you're already predetermined. You will not be so that that. And I think the, the lawyers, he talks about like the opening where all the Jewish law firms in New York, that they were doing a certain type of law that was considered less couth, if you will, by the other lawyers. Yeah, So it's a great book. I love it.
0: Yeah. I and mean, I, I think the big outcome that I took from Outliers is that you need to find and create as many opportunities for yourself as you can. Like, And some of the stories that he tells there talk about how people failed, 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 but they kept trying to find the opportunity. And then it happened. It wasn't always the first time.
1: John, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And I have to tell you, you may have made another sale <laughs> because my company is uh, right now looking at tools. So I'm going to go and call my team and tell them, hey, go and take a look at Smart Suite."
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it, just go to the website and sign up. But feel free to reach out to me directly as well. I'd love to love to give you a personal overview as
1: well. Fabulous. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy enjoyed it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows for reviews and ratings, please leave a rating or a review. Hopefully a very good one. And remember, the best reviews left before the end of July and August will receive some goodies, so head over to Apple Podcasts and do your magic. Stay tuned until the end of the credits because I will play another song by Susan Catane, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. To learn more about Smart Suite, go to the website smartsuite.com, spelled S-M-A-R-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number 4. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp with a D and look for the show on Facebook as Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by ProPodcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Salverino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, Can't Chase a Train by Susan Cattaneo.
2: is the train the train